very fortunate to work in a field and to live in a society where I can pretty much say anything I want, and as long as it's not a clear and present danger to somebody else, I don't really have to worry about any legal repercussions of speaking my mind. I did not feel the same way when I traveled to Turkey recently, and in fact I found myself for the first time ever consciously holding back some things that I wished to share with my audience. There weren't any specific essays that I wanted to write that I didn't write, or podcast topics that I wanted to cover that I did not cover, but rather there were news items that I wanted to share on my Twitter feed, for instance, that I decided to hold in reserve until I had left Istanbul. And this was, it could be argued, perhaps, an overreaction. But what's been happening in Turkey under President Erdogan is a fairly substantial crackdown on journalists and educators and other so-called intellectuals. And this crackdown has only gotten worse as 2016 has progressed. I was in the area earlier in 2016 But in July, there was a failed coup attempt to overthrow the government. And that coup became an excuse by the government to pull the trigger on even more intense and radical crackdowns on any opposition or potential opposition. Anyone that the government and perhaps Erdogan himself saw as a threat in the present or in a potential theoretical future. Just recently, Erdogan jailed another 120 journalists in a very high-profile roundup of innocent people who just happened to be critical of something that the president has done. And already this year, there have been several thousand jailed under the same terms. These are not people who have done anything to create a clear and present dangerous situation. These are not people who have done anything other than report on something or teach something that was not clearly slanted toward the government, something that was not clearly propaganda. People who were recording fact or presenting opinions that differed from the administration's opinions. Remarkably, Turkey under President Erdogan has actually jailed more journalists than even China, which is a country that is notorious for stomping opposition before it can gain any semblance of a toehold, and meticulously controlling every aspect of its internal press, even to the point of blocking out foreign websites and apps from their firewalled internet. They have so completely blocked out anything that goes against the party line that they have become a regime that is in some ways defined by their ability to control the press. And yet Erdogan has jailed more journalists than China has. And this is something that runs parallel with his overall efforts to not just staunch a free press, but also to staunch free speech. Over 3,000 people since he took office have been charged with insulting 
the president. And among them, famously, was a former Miss Turkey who was sentenced to 14 months in jail for writing a brief satirical poem about the president and posting it on Instagram. The government suspended her sentence when she promised to never again make disparaging remarks about President Erdogan, the implication there being that they clearly don't want to make too public a scene about it. It would have been a very bad PR nightmare to put Miss Turkey in jail for over a year. But they also wanted to make it very clear that no matter who you are, we will get to you if you do anything or say anything that is critical of this administration and of our strongman leader in particular. This is an approach to governance and of conversation control, I guess you could call it, that's very similar to the so-called les majeste laws in Thailand, which essentially say that it is illegal to defame, insult, or threaten the royal family, and particularly the king. Anyone who does any of these things, who says anything rude about or insults or threatens the royal family, will get 3 to 15 years in prison for each count of insult or threat. And terrifyingly, there are no set definitions for what any of these terms actually mean. And as such, the government is free to use them however they see fit against essentially anyone they see fit to use them against. Now, these les majeste laws were initially implemented in 1908 and were later, over the years, over the course of several different cases, reinterpreted to also apply to insults against royal projects, different monuments and such, also the institution of monarchy itself, so to criticize the fact that there is a monarchy falls under these dictums, and against any past royalty as well. In 2013, a man in Thailand was sentenced for, quote, preparing and attempting to commit an act of les majeste. So he had not done it yet, but he was still sentenced under these laws for supposedly preparing and attempting to defame or insult or threaten a royal family member or a royal project, or the institution of the monarchy, or some past royalty, you can see how quickly something like this might spiral out of control. And in fact, in 2015, it reached a new level of ridiculousness when another Thai man was sentenced for making a sarcastic comment about the king's dog. It becomes quite clear quite quickly that this is something that inherently stifles public discourse. Having les majeste style laws in place where it is impossible to legally criticize the people running the system or the consequences of that system or the system itself, it means that the only change that can occur must come from those currently running the system. And of course, those who are at the top of a certain type of system have very little reason to change that system because under anything new, they may not maintain their power. They may not maintain their prestige and control. And so these types of laws being implemented 
actually creates a situation in which perhaps there is more stability and predictability, and there is certainly more calm and comfort and security for the people up top. But this is stability that is accomplished by stifling anyone who might create any sort of dynamism, who might rock the boat in any direction and any way. This chill over public discourse, over the ability to speak freely with other people, with other citizens, stifles the possibility of dissent, but it also stifles the possibility of any change. Because when you don't know who you can trust, it's nearly impossible to create an accurate record of what's actually happening and note in a consistent and concrete manner the flaws within the system in which you're operating. It is nearly impossible to form or foment rebellion to overthrow those who are currently keeping you from making any changes. And it is nearly impossible to even imagine in a public way, in a way that will allow you to get feedback on your ideas, how things might change for the better. Now, I don't want this to seem like I'm just picking on Thailand and Turkey. The World Press Freedom Index, which is created and maintained by Reporters Without Borders, lists Thailand and Turkey as numbers 136 and 151, respectively, out of all of the countries in the world. So out of 180 countries that this list keeps tabs on, and it lists them in order of number one being the most press freedom and number 180 being the least press freedom. Thailand and Turkey are 136 and 151. So that means that despite what I've just outlined, despite these laws that do not allow you to make sarcastic comments about the king's dog, there are other countries that are far more limiting and abusive to their press, to their citizenry, that completely stifle the possibility of public discourse and of evolution of any kind, except of the sort that comes from the top down. Which is to say that there are many government structures around the world that push in that direction toward fewer rights for their people in effort to ostensibly at least, create a more secure or secure-feeling experience, either for the people or for the higher-ups. I think in most cases they might tell themselves it's both, but there are absolutely kleptocracies in the world where those in power do what they can to strip the citizenry of as much value and as many resources as possible in order to line their own pockets and secure their own futures. But on the other side of that, there are places like Singapore, which has often been called the most pleasant police state in the world, because it does have stark restrictions on what can be said and what can be done when compared with other governments, and severe punishments for those who step out of line. But notably, among other countries that have such restrictions, in Singapore they do so in the name of public order and general safety and in a lot of ways in, in the creation of stability in order to cultivate opportunity. And so this is a contrast from the situation in places like Thailand and Turkey, 
and in China and in the former Soviet Union, because Singapore is a lot less autocratic, even though some of the on-the-ground realities in terms of things like freedom of the press are essentially the same. But freedom of the press and freedom of speech in general is just one variable, just one indicator of what is happening within a given society, and in a lot of ways, what a particular society values. Because you can implement a great deal of restrictions, but that doesn't mean that these societies value restriction. It typically means that they value stability and predictability and implied security more than they value things like dynamism and variability and unpredictability and evolution. Societies with more liberated press and with more liberal free speech laws, these countries have very different priorities and as such operate quite differently. And so when looking at these different countries, when looking at these different governments and societies, it's valuable in any conversation that we have about them and when comparing and contrasting the way that they operate, it's valuable to ask what norms, what standard methods of operating and what values are they attempting to enshrine and defend? And as a follow-up to that question, what happens within any society when they find that their norms are being disrupted? You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. This episode of Let's Know Things is brought to you by listeners like you. A huge thanks to everybody who has already contributed in some way, shape, or form. And thanks in advance if you are yourself considering contributing to the show. There are many different ways to do it. If you go to letsknowthings.com and scroll down a little bit, you will find a bunch of different easy-to-access options. This episode is also brought to you by HostGator. HostGator is my hosting company of choice, and they are offering substantial discounts to listeners of Let's Know Things. If you pop on over to hostgator.com LKT, you will be able to see what they have on offer. And this episode is also brought to you by Audible. Go to audibletrial.com LKT, and you will receive a free month of Audible and a free audiobook of your choice. And they have a few hundred thousand different audiobooks available, and I will make a book recommendation at the end of this podcast if you are having trouble figuring out a way to spend that credit. Alrighty, let's get back to the show. The article that I want to unspool today comes from the New York Times, and it's entitled, Ritual of Ever-Present Coverage May Not Pass Muster with Trump. And this article focuses on one specific thing that many experts and observers are assuming is going to change under the Donald Trump presidential administration. And that is the idea of having a presidential press pool that follows the president around. 
And what this amounts to is a collection of journalists that go everywhere the president goes every day. And this is something that a lot of people, I think, don't even know exists, but it is a precedent that was set during the FDR administration. And it's not a legal obligation like many of the things that Trump is purported to do away with. This is more of a tradition. And it's something that has shown its value over the years. It's something that essentially means at any given point, if something happens, the press is there to capture that moment in history. One of the more frequently cited episodes of this actually happening is during 9-11, when President George W. Bush received the news that the World Trade Center in New York had been attacked. We have documentary footage and photography and everything else of what happened that morning with the president, despite the fact that the only thing on his schedule was to go to a school and read a children's book to children. There was absolutely no reason for the press to be there. There was no story actually occurring on that day. And yet we had the press there to capture what happened. And so the the concept of the press pool is part to document history in that way. It's also part somewhat protective in a way to have a large group of people around the president at any given moment, just in case something were to happen. And it also ensures that should the president need to make an announcement, spur of the moment, there is always somebody there who has a massive megaphone that he or she can reach out to and amplify their message very quickly. And so there are absolutely transparency purposes, there are historical purposes, and there are tradition purposes around the presidential press pool. And it is assumed that Trump will do something to change this. If he doesn't do away with it completely, he will probably change it so that he is able to dodge the press when he wants to, so that he can go about his other business or operate with less transparency. Now, since this article was published, there has been an announcement from the Trump administration that they will set up something more consistent, either a press pool or something very like it, and that this initial glitch where the press was completely left out of the first couple of weeks of what was happening within his administration was a glitch, an oversight, nothing more. But to me, what's really interesting about this matter and about so many of the other discussions that we are having on this eve of a new, highly contentious administration is that what it's really about, what this and what so many other things we're talking about are really about is the clash between the status quo and what might follow that. It's kind of an outrage in favor of the way things have been done and against the way things might be done in the future. And I say this not not because I think there's anything wrong with the press pool or say the idea that US presidents shouldn't have financial entanglements that might sway their judgment, which is another thing that is all over the news right now as I record this. I say it because it seems that in the decisions that we make and in the biases that we have, and even in the way that we see the world, our very perspective, 
the way that we filter all the news that we take in, we have a tendency to prioritize last year's revolutionary ideas over this year's revolutionary ideas. Today's novelty, what seems novel to the present version of us, is threatening. But the last round of novel ideas, which have now become normal, those we're good with. That is what we will defend tooth and claw. Or said another way, we are biased toward previous changes that have become our norms and against changes to those previous changes. We are against things that might threaten today's norms. This is a concept that is kind of big, and I think it warrants some examples. Let's start with the concept of Westphalian sovereignty. Now, before 1648, Europe was just riddled with the corpses of soldiers who had died in the near-constant skirmishes and wars between the major nations in the area at the time of Spain, France, Sweden, the Dutch Republic, and the Holy Roman Empire. And after a particularly grueling series of campaigns that were later designated the Thirty Years' War, the representatives from these nations came together to try to end this conflict. This one and the Eighty Years' War that had been ongoing during this time for the previous 80 years between the Spanish and the Dutch. And so they met to try to end these conflicts and the consequences of these discussions was a series of treaties that were collectively called the Peace of Westphalia. And as a result of these treaties of the Peace of Westphalia, they also agreed to respect each other's national sovereignty. And what this meant was that there was finally a formalized agreement that every country involved had the right to self-determination. That is, to govern and exist however they like without having to worry about outside interference from other governments as a result. This is a concept that seems very simple. So simple that it might not even seem revolutionary today. So obvious by today's standards that it's unbelievable, actually, that it didn't exist in any formal way before this point. But at the time, this was not an obvious path to take. This was the moment, this was the series of treaties, the Peace of Westphalia, that ended the generations-old religious wars that had defined life in Europe for so long. And so basically, formally saying to each other, you do you, boo, was a concept that was radical. It was unprecedented on this scale to allow those heathens across the border to live in a way that makes sense to them and to govern in a way that makes sense to them and to not adopt your religion because you are clearly right and your way of governing because your king and leader is clearly superior and to not kill them if they do not give in to all of your standards and priorities and ways of viewing the world. It was a wild idea. And it wasn't without its detractors. The Pope was not pleased about this because the Protestants and the Calvinists, which were other types of Christians, they were given equal rights before the law 
equal to Catholics as a result of this agreement. But despite the naysayers who wanted to keep things the way that they were and maintain the kill everyone who isn't us status quo, it still came into common practice and became the standard throughout Europe. It did not end all war in the area, but it did lead to increased time periods, increased eras of peace, and it established a balance of power that discouraged the killing of each other in all but the most dramatic of circumstances. And because it happened when it did, because this respect for other nations' sovereignty came into place right before the age of discovery, when these European nations set out into the world and started colonizing and mapping out how things were elsewhere, this became the dominant mode of operation and of dealing with each other, of other nations that they considered to be their equals at least. Clearly it wasn't the case for those outside of the European sphere. But for those they perceived to be their equals at least, it became the dominant mode of dealing with each other in the newly developed, burgeoning, interconnected international world that they were establishing. Now, the Peace of Westphalia wasn't perfect, of course. It did formally recognize Switzerland as a country, which is nice. It also deigned that royalty could choose any religion that they wanted for their country, but only so long as they chose from Catholicism, Lutheranism, or Calvinism. It was a quantum leap forward for the time, but it does still seem somewhat medieval by modern standards. But again, to the people from that time period, it was radical. It was something that a lot of people thought could not possibly work, or if it did, it might cost them everything. They worried that they might no longer be who they were or who they saw themselves to be because they would be losing themselves as a consequence of this change, of not being able to spread their ideas to those heathens across the border. Everything would suddenly be shifted around, and they, as a continent-wide population, would change and would emerge as something different than before, and maybe something not as good as they were previously. The establishment of Westphalian sovereignty, then, was kind of a parallax moment. And a parallax is a change in the apparent position of an object due to the observer moving and therefore viewing it from a different angle or distance. If I hold my phone out at arm's length and then move my head an inch to the left, the phone will seem to have moved a little bit. The background behind it will shift in a noticeable way. Not dramatic, but noticeable. If I hold the phone just a few inches from my nose, on the other hand, a one-inch shift of my head will have a much greater impact. The phone will seem to have moved a great distance. The background will have changed a great deal because it's closer to my point of view. If I set the phone up on a bookshelf across the room and move my head an inch, though, the phone won't really seem to have moved at all. It's far away, and therefore my perception of it has changed, despite the fact that I am shifting the same distance. Our perception of change, then, is partially predicated on how close we are to the thing that is changing. And so when it comes to history, 
This is very often the case. It is hard for us to imagine just how radical an idea respecting the boundaries and beliefs of others and their sovereign right to govern however they like might have been at the time. Because we are now so far away from a time period when that was not commonly the case, being further away from that thing, looking at it, it seems as if nothing has changed. It doesn't seem important. But for them, this was a change. This was something they were looking at that took place right up close to their nose. And consequently, it was something that a lot of people feared would bring disaster to their way of life. So here's something to think about. The idea of sovereign nations, of each country and each government having the right to rule however they like, to worship however they like, to operate their economy however they like. This is an idea that is now so common that we don't even really question its veracity. It's something that we take for granted. But should that be the case? Does this system still make sense? Did it ever make sense? Are there other methods of operating that might better serve us in the modern world? I am not arguing for holy wars or anything like that here, but consider other options, alternatives to the way that we have things set up. Consider the idea of a so-called supply chain world, one in which we do away with borders completely, and instead the world is made up of an interconnected network of supply chains and electrical grids and things of that nature, all webbed between hubs, city-states that operate as nodes in this network, and a focus on influence over somewhat arbitrary lines in the sand. And so these different nodes could have auras of space that they influence because they create sufficient culture and goods and such to provide for the people over a certain distance. But to simply draw lines in the sand and say, you better not step across this line because everything on this side is mine, would disappear. We would open all borders and allow trade and culture, essentially, to do the talking instead of claiming a space that we are not necessarily using or able to make use of effectively, rather than making it more difficult to exchange resources and ideas under such a system, we would make it easier than ever before in history and let a given region's sphere of influence expand or contract based on what they are providing to those who take up their modus operandi, be it a governing system or a religion or their pop idols, or whatever it happens to be. This idea and versions of it are actually being tossed around by some very smart people. And yeah, there are many flaws baked into the system, some that are already obvious, I think, and some that will no doubt, or would no doubt, only become obvious if we implemented it. And yes, it would be an incredibly difficult change to make on an international scale. Can you imagine trying to convince all the governments of the world to drop all their borders simultaneously? But my thinking is that that actually would not be the most difficult hurdle, trying to convince all those governments to drop all those borders. But instead, the most difficult hurdle to overcome would be getting people, civilians, to take the idea seriously enough to even consider it in the first place. Because although we like to believe 
most of us anyway, that we act 100% rationally all the time. And because we are so good at justifying our thought processes after the fact, when we come to a conclusion, it is easy to ignore the fact that most of us, most of the time, have a resting bias toward the status quo. And the more fundamental that status quo seems, the longer ago it took effect, or the better it's been sold to us by those who benefit from having it there. And the more things we have built atop it, the more difficult it is to question it, the more difficult it is to see it as something that we could conceivably change, as something that is malleable and destroyable and replaceable, rather than some kind of law of nature, the way things obviously have to be. Nations do not automatically work the way that they work today. The way that we have set up sovereignty and negotiation and alliances and trade and immigration, all of these things are inventions, and not even from a particularly long time ago. For a long time, this is not how the world worked, and it doesn't have to be how the world works forever. But we have known this way of working for so long, and so many of the modern systems that we take for granted are built atop this one idea of national sovereignty, that questioning it, that even conceiving of what it would be like without it, can feel like questioning the idea of using currency as a valid replacement for generalized value during a transaction, or the idea that we need to have people, some kind of governing system, to run things. There are absolutely other ways to manage value and transactions within a society, and there are other ways to set up a society that doesn't even require transactions. There are other ways to run governments and ways to operate without a government, or at least not a government of the kind that we would recognize as such. Anything outside of the current framework can seem so unlikely as to warrant our disdain or us ignoring it completely, rather than taking it seriously and seriously considering what that might look like, whether it would be better or worse. This is not because the way we do things are inherently the best or the only ways but because the changes that we made at some point have now become our status quo, and we have a latent bias toward the status quo. So how does that happen? How does something evolve? How does it change from a wild and crazy idea that probably won't work, like Westphalian sovereignty, into something that is the obvious and perhaps only choice? because it's all we've ever known, because it's something that is so clearly superior to any other option, if indeed there are other options. This type of intellectual entrenchment is something that does happen naturally, I think, with time, but there is also plenty of incentive for governments and other players who benefit from a particular system to spread the good word about it, to bang the drums a little in its favor. Sometimes this is done very intentionally and in ways that are obvious at the beginning, from the outset. Take a look at propaganda from any point in history and you will see what I'm talking about. The former USSR, the Soviet Union, was a rich tapestry 
of remarkable propaganda. And the posters that they've made in particular are some of my favorites of all the propaganda posters that have ever been made anywhere in the world. These posters go on and on about subjects as diverse as giving 110% every day when you go to work in an effort to meet the standards of their five-year plan. Some of them are about going to space and how that is the natural next step for an industrialized nation. And then others are more obscure but very specific, like the idea that corn is a wonder vegetable and how it deserves our respect and for us to plant it everywhere. These are just some of the more interesting and obvious and visual examples, and therefore easy to parse for people who do not speak the local language and who would recognize some of the variables that exist in the world and therefore understand what they're trying to say when they were created. But I'm guessing there's never been a nation in the world ever throughout history that has not made use of propaganda of some kind to promote their national ideals or what they see to be their national ideals. The United States has done this throughout history and still does it today to promote ideas like liberty and freedom and equality, while ancient Rome published frantically about taming the wilds and bringing civilization to the world. You can actually look to a nation's children's cartoons to see fairly accurately and simplistically what they value the morality lessons that will almost always be baked in to these cartoons very clearly paint a picture of what they want their children to grow up valuing. Look to a nation's military posters and commercials to see how they promote the work that they do, and you'll learn even more about what they value and about how they promote those ideas to a different age demographic. Look at their fiction, and you will see what themes and archetypes can be found across their stories, and that will say something about their culture and what they value, what they see as a hero, what they see as a villain as well. All of these things and many, many others aggregate into a fairly detailed portrayal of what a collection of people value and what their desired status quo is, at least right now, for their nation whether that is in truth or simply in perception. This amplification and reinforcement of the status quo goes way beyond government systems, though. Every time a new technology rolls out, if it's not a carbon copy of a previous technology with a higher resolution or faster charging time or a slimmer model, we tend to have trouble adapting. The longer a particular technology has been with us, and the more fundamental it's become to other technologies, to other systems, to other infrastructure, the more difficult it is for us to give it up. Fossil fuels, for instance, have only been the fuel du jour for a little over 150 years. That's three or four generations. It was 1859 when the first early combustion engine and first modern oil well came into being. And this kicked off the oil boom that then went on to define the late 19th century and entire 20th century. Humans have been using oil, both animal and fossil fuel style oil, for something like 4,000 years, but it was never really a big thing until the mid-19th century. 
And yet that is what it became. And that's what it remains today in most places around the world in 2016. Even though we have many other technologies available now, and we have the ability to imagine what the world would look like without fossil fuels, actually figuring out what the reality of that sort of situation would be is a somewhat difficult proposition. And this is not because we don't have sufficient early technologies that are not predicated on fossil fuels. And it's not because we don't have sufficient science fiction and other imaginings of what that world might look like. But even those early models of new technologies and infrastructure, and even those wild imaginings of what the world, what human society could look like without fossil fuels, are somewhat limited in scope. They typically are mere extensions, iterations of what the here and now actually looks like. The cars in many of these fictions are different and evolved and futuristic because they are flying, but they are still cars. Cars are a technology that evolved the way they did and look the way they look and operate the way they operate and move on certain structures the way that they do because they are the product of the internal combustion engine. What might we actually use as transportation if we were not tied and tethered to that engine and to the economic systems and infrastructure that keep it going? How might we travel if we didn't use roads or if we didn't take for granted that we would all have access to private transport, if we didn't have gas stations and asphalt, if we didn't operate within an economy that itself was powered by fossil fuels. It's a truly tricky thought experiment, not because we lack imagination, but because even our imaginations tend to start with what we know today here in reality and then extrapolate from there, when what we really need to do is to think about a society and a web of infrastructure that is completely separate from that that is based on unknown materials and unknown fuels, and consequently unknown ways of operating, unknown standards and traditions and cultural values. It says something that a lot of our most dramatic reimaginings of what the world might look like, of what the universe might look like when we get our hands on advanced technologies, would essentially be the same as it is today with the same family dynamics and relationships, the same economics, except we're flying through space and we're using lasers instead of bullets. But a true reimagining, something that would actually take into account a completely radically reimagined system based on completely different elements and fundamental systems, would probably be wildly different from that. It would not be today with spaceships and lasers. It would be something that would be nearly unrecognizable. In the same way that the way our governments and technologies and relationships operate today would be largely unrecognizable to somebody who was operating in a pre-Westphalian sovereignty era. But imagining this is one thing and making it actually happen is another thing. And as I mentioned already, it's an incredibly tall order because we are predisposed to base even our predictions and our imaginings on the way things are today. And so it's difficult to imagine this in the first place, and it's even more difficult then 
coming from this era, coming from this set of standards and priorities and everything else, to look at these potential new worlds and the way things might be, and to imagine above and beyond what it would actually look like and to say, well, would that change even be a good thing? Is it even possible to have value judgments about a world, about a civilization that operates in a completely different way and as such has completely different sets of standards and values, a completely different idea of right and wrong? In a pre-Westphalian world, the correct moral thing to do was to conquer anybody who was different from you so that you could force them to adopt your king and your religion and your societal norms. In a post-Westphalian world, that is not the case. So what might the world look like after our next big parallax shift? And how can we possibly imagine what would be good and bad under those new standards? How can we judge knowing that somebody from those pre-sovereignty years would look at us and consider the way that we live, respecting each other's territory and right to live however they like and to govern however they like, they would think us monsters by their standards. Could we ever accurately judge a future society, knowing that our judgment will be predicated on standards that exist today and not standards according to the time period in which they live? I think most fiction, most science fiction in particular, doesn't actually try to predict anything. It more gives us an excuse to think outside of our current situation. And even if that thinking doesn't go much further than just replacing bullets with lasers and cars with spaceships, it's still an opportunity to practice our ability to step outside of the way things are and imagine the way things might be. Even little shifts in that direction is a good mental workout that allows us to be a little bit more malleable and allows us in a way to set aside our reflexive judgments of changes, to imagine through the eyes of someone else, through the eyes of different characters, what we might prize and what we might prioritize and what might be good and bad under very different circumstances, and how we might be able to have value judgments using values that are not our own. So they're not always great prediction tools, but they might be great workouts in this regard. Something that's always been interesting to me is that research has shown children to be some of the most authoritarian little dictators when it comes to enforcing norms on each other, but also on adults, on their parents even. We are born with a greater or lesser degree of norm adherence. It's something that is baked in and we all fall on different places on that spectrum. And it's a safe bet that the experiences that we have throughout our lives move us around on that spectrum a fair bit as well. That isn't something that changes super radically as we age. We express it in different ways, but we really do in many different ways tend to enforce norms on each other. Sometimes tooth and claw and sometimes substantially more subtly, but we do it throughout our entire lives. Look around at the different establishments and systems and organizations in your life, and you'll probably realize that although many of them exist to keep the trains running on time, to keep something moving smoothly or as smoothly as possible, most or all of them also exist to help maintain norms 
to help enforce the status quo. Some of them, as I mentioned before, like governments, also play a large role in establishing what those norms happen to be, either because they are pre-existing or because they would like to establish new norms for their society to take on and uphold. But status quo maintenance is a more common and fundamental trait of most systems and organizations. And frankly, that's a good thing. Much of what anyone who exists in the world today is able to enjoy infrastructurally is the consequence of the norms that we have developed over the years. Being able to walk down the street without being killed is the result of a social construct that we benefit from. That you can own money and generally assume that that money is exchangeable for goods and services is another largely positive norm. That your nation will typically be able to maintain its sovereignty and not have another nation come in and enforce their beliefs on you is another nice benefit of living in a time where there are so many well-defined, well-defended norms. If we went running around changing the status quo willy-nilly all the time, it is very unlikely that we would benefit from so many predictable, quality-of-life-enhancing social conventions. But that these norms are so well entrenched also means that they are far more difficult to change. Part of this is because change can sometimes imply a sort of disrespect for those who have come before, to our elders, our ancestors, to those who built much of the world that we live in and enjoy. It's notable how many cultures around the world have kind of built-in mores and traditions around respecting their elders. We really don't like to rock the boat when it comes to that kind of thing. And it is also common and understandable that those who have grown up knowing one way of life will not want to see that way of life change, or will find new things repugnant because they do not apply or are not relevant to them and their needs and beliefs and priorities having come from a different time period. But those of a younger generation will have perhaps the same response to the older generation's norms. They will look at them and say, this is not relevant to me, and they will chafe under the weight of these traditions that do not fit them quite as well as they should. This is very often what leads to iteration, but also eventually, if the change in priorities and perspective from one generation to the next is large enough, it is what leads to the larger shakeups and eventual change in the status quo. And it's important to remember that change and evolution of this kind is not a natural thing that we can take for granted. It's not something that just happens without us even trying. It is incredibly common for cultures to stagnate and to grow brittle with age and to be broken or replaced by something new. Throughout history, groups that have not stayed malleable enough to change with the times and adjust their composition and shape over the years, they have drifted away, and typically far more quickly than those who have at least some small appetite for novelty and dynamism. 
the idea that the past kicked ass and everything new sucks is not one that is limited to older generations and analog-obsessed hipsters. It is common. It's a common cultural trope. It's a mindset that perpetuates the familiar at the expense of the new, and very often it romanticizes time periods and lifestyles that didn't actually happen, or at least not in the way that they remember it. And this is a good thing as well. Having some pushback against the continuous onslaught of change is something that is positive because it does maintain a lot of the quality of life benefits that we take for granted. Not all changes that are made to a system or that could be made to a system will be an improvement on the previous iteration. More than once throughout history, a government that operated just so-so, that operated okay, was replaced by a government that was horrible and that caused great suffering in almost everyone who lived under its rule. More than once throughout history, an older, reliable, but somewhat unexciting technology was replaced by a shiny new one that sucked, that turned out to be a dud. In a way, you could say that the unspoken purpose of most of our institutions isn't to completely stifle change, but to provide just enough pushback, just enough friction, that things don't go crazy and go completely off the rails. The upsetting of this balance, I think, is where we run into issues. We don't want to cling to the past at the expense of the present and the future, but we also don't want to forget what happened before, both because we can learn from our mistakes and successes, and because it helps tether us to feel that we are part of something bigger, that we are the consequence and extension of larger ideas and movements that have percolated and changed things across time. But unfortunately, sometimes this isn't the case. Sometimes maintaining the status quo means keeping oneself in power. And as such, institutions that might otherwise exist to maintain a sense of cultural historical dignity are instead appropriated for the purposes of scaring would-be change makers and antagonists. In Thailand and Turkey, for instance, we have two examples of ruling parties who use their control and use their mechanisms that they could use to just add a bit of friction so that things don't change too quickly. They instead use these as tools to reinforce their dominance. In other places, the U.S. very much included, you can find individuals and some groups that are power players doing the same thing or attempting to do the same thing, to weaponize the friction-creating institutions and systems that we have in place and to aim them at dissidents who might threaten their own power and position. Fortunately, so far at least, in a lot of these countries, again the U.S. included, these larger structures and systems still have sufficient checks and balances to keep any one person or any one group of people from taking wholesale dominance. We will see what the future holds in that regard. I hope this continues to be the case, but you never know. One thing I do feel fairly certain about, however, is that whomever does take control or take the majority of control, regardless of why, 
will do their best to ensure that the system put into place seems like the only correct way for things to operate. They will use propaganda, both overt and covert, both direct and indirect, to ensure that the reality their people experience day to day becomes the new norm, the new status quo that they expect and defend. They will do their best to ensure that the world that they create for their people becomes the only world that their people can easily conceive of. I recently returned from a trip to New Zealand, and I lived something like six or seven years ago on the South Island in the city of Christchurch. And shortly after I moved away, Christchurch was essentially destroyed by a series of earthquakes at the end of 2010 and beginning of 2011. And this rendered their downtown essentially unlivable, and people fled to the outskirts of town. And they've been spending the last five or six years rebuilding and trying to ensure that the new structures are capable of surviving future cataclysmic earthquakes, also ensuring that they rebuild things in such a way that they can be happy with the infrastructure and the systems and the economy that they're building and the culture that evolves around it. It's interesting to look at what's happening in Christchurch because it gives us a real-world example of what happens when a culture's status quo, the, the literal structures of their society, but also the systems and habits that they used to operate in accordance with, what happens when they're wiped out, when they're washed away, when they collapse? This is a city that had essentially all of their infrastructure, and particularly their antique, older infrastructure, demolished over the course of a very short period of time. And so I don't think anyone in the area, given the opportunity to prevent what happened, would fail to pull the trigger on that. They would absolutely try to prevent everything from being destroyed, people from dying, their wealth from diminishing. But at the same time, a lot of people now, the ones who are helping to rebuild in particular, are looking for what opportunities they can find, are trying to figure out, well, that infrastructure is gone. That way of doing things is gone. That set of traditions is gone. What do we build now? They are seeing it as an opportunity to build things more intentionally, both literally and figuratively, both their actual buildings and roads and such, but also the way their society operates, the way their society views itself, the norms that they have in place and that they value. I think most people in situations like that, whether it's having gone through an earthquake or having gone through a particularly difficult and uncomfortable presidential election, or whether it's a coup or a coup attempt that has happened in their country, I think most people, given the option, would not choose to experience a disaster and a wholesale destruction of their status quo. But for those who are willing to look at such things, such changes, as an opportunity as well as a tragedy, there's a lot to be excited about for the future. There's a lot of potential for a group of people who have the opportunity to build things from a far more foundational point than would have been possible before the disaster to create something that might be even better than it was before. This 
requires, of course, being able to clear the rubble and then to look at a vast empty space. And rather than succumbing to feelings of isolation and confusion, to see that empty space as the opportunity that it is to build something better, to make changes, to look forward rather than backward. Not all traditions are bad and hold us back, and not all new ideas and new ways of doing things are good and take us forward. But having the ability to take a look at all of the options, both those from the past and those conceptual ones from a potential future, is a rare opportunity. It's rare in the sense that quite typically these changes happen very slowly. And so it's a big responsibility for anyone who finds themselves in such a situation where the way things are done is a phrase that ceases to mean what it once meant. But it's also a great opportunity and one that ideally we don't simply look at with trepidation, but also as a kind of lump of clay from which we can shape anything that we might be able to imagine. This episode of Let's Know Things was brought to you by its wonderful listeners. It's your support that helps me keep this thing going, and I very much appreciate it. Whether that means giving a dollar or three or five or ten or setting up some kind of monthly payment, whether it means leaving a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast with a friend or with your social network of choice. I very much appreciate everybody who has already done so, and if you are thinking of doing so in the future, head on over to letsknowthings.com. There is a list of different options there. You can also support the podcast by checking out our sponsors. Sponsors for today's episode include HostGator. HostGator is my hosting company of choice. They have amazing customer service. They are super duper easy to use. They're also very reasonably priced all the time, but if you are a listener of Let's Know Things, they will make their prices even more reasonable. Head on over to hostgator.com LKT if you are looking to build a blog or a portfolio site or a website for your business. They have got something that will work for you. It will be ridiculously cheap and it will be super easy to use as well. hostgator.com LKT. And this episode was also brought to you by Audible. I read a whole lot of books. Listening to audiobooks has become an ever-increasingly enjoyable part of my day. I turn one on every time I am chilling out, looking to relax in between work that I'm doing, or when I'm on a road trip, or when I'm taking a walk. I particularly enjoy listening to nonfiction books using Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com LKT, you will get a free month of Audible, so you can try that out. But you'll also get a free audiobook of your choice. And if you do not already have something in mind to spend that credit on, might I recommend the book Connectography by Parag Khanna. Connectography is a book that stimulated part of the thought process behind aspects of this episode, actually. It is all about how the world today and the way that we view power today, power in terms of influence, but also militarily and everything else, 
it's it's more accurate to look at the world as a web of infrastructure and trade routes and things of that nature than as a series of sovereign states that are divided by borders. And in fact, much of what happens in the world militarily and in terms of trade and in terms of alliances and, and things like that make a whole lot more sense when viewed through the lens of these trade routes and this, this interconnected mesh of resource distribution. There are some excellent sections that talk about the coming conflicts, but also opportunities in the Arctic. And so it's a book that will challenge a lot of assumptions. If you're anything like me, at least, it's something that will make you frequently uncomfortable. But if you allow yourself to think about what's being said, and then take a look at some of the things that are happening in the world today, and that are predicted to happen in the coming years, it actually is a very valuable perspective from which to view things and from which to make predictions. So again, that is Connectography by Parag Khanna. You can snag this book at your local library, your local indie bookstore. You can get it on your Kindle or your Kobo. But you can also sign up for a free month of Audible and get your free audiobook credit by going to audibletrial.com LKT. And if you use that credit on this book, it will be 100% free and yours to keep whether or not you end up sticking with Audible past that free month. So it's worth checking out. Also a great way to support the podcast. You can find the show notes for this episode and for every episode at letsnotethings.com. You can find the show on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at Let's Know Things. You can find me personally, Colin Wright, the host at Colin Is My Name, pretty much everywhere on the internet. And you can find out more about me and check out the books that I have written at colin.io. My blog is Exile Lifestyle, which you can find at exilelifestyle.com. And I have a YouTube show called Consider This, which you might enjoy if you are enjoying this podcast. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank you.